Welcome to Reader House Author Roundtable. I'm Ellis Stockton Rossini. How annoyed are you by our healthcare system? I bet everyone has a story about outrageous prescriptions, trying to find a doctor, outrageous bills, waiting for approval on appointments and tests. Larry Stone has heard all of them as a health insurance salesman, and now he puts his experience to use in his book entitled The American Healthcare Crisis. So let's dive right in, Larry. Why is our insurance system such a mess? We let big business take it over. You know, you can have certain models that work in a capitalist system, but Unfortunately, medical insurance doesn't fit in that model. There are so much profits and money being spent outside of actually giving medical care by the industry. It's killing premiums. You really can't talk about reform until you fix the system. I mean, you got the guy for United Healthcare, he made $15 million last year. Should insurance be not for profit? Yes. I'm a big believer in direct contracting. You're already starting to see it. Been with several large companies around the United States. You don't need a middleman. You know, with computers today and, and, and the ability to build actuary and claims, you just don't need it. Percent of premium is spent on claims. For what? We, you know, all major cities have hospital organizations. Why can't I write them a check every month? What do you do for catastrophic health insurance? There's some things that you insure for that. There's a place for the industry. And to give you a good example, I think it's Intel has signed a, a thing with a bunch of clinics and hospital clinics around the state of Texas. Their employees go in and for a $5 copay, they get this services and Intel pays that organization X dollars a month. And then as I state in my book, then you just allow for catastrophic illnesses. That becomes a much lesser premium. Or you could have a catastrophic pool, okay? I mean, pharma has spent $2 billion in Congress making sure that the laws don't change. Or if they do change, they change in their favor. When you look at companies like an Anthem or you look at companies like United or Humana, I'm not critical of them. I'm just saying it doesn't work. Those individuals that run those institutions don't get up every day. How are we going to provide cheaper health care? No. How are we going to be provide a better return for our stockholders? Capitalist system, there ain't nothing wrong with that. But it doesn't work with healthcare. I mean, Aetna had a $1.6 billion profit. Profit after expenses. How do we fix it? Well, you start making direct contracting a source for people to get insurance. Blue Cross started in Texas, Waco, Texas, with Baylor University in 1929, as stated in my book. And the hospital was going broke. It was the middle of the depression. And how are they going to survive? Nobody can pay them anything. So a fellow came up with the idea. Why didn't every citizen of Waco pay them $6 a year? And they did, and they got two weeks' worth of hospitalization for that. And the hospital got their money and their cash flow, and it was a huge success. And that slowly, Blue Cross Blue Shield developed, and then all of a sudden, big business gets involved. And all of a sudden, man, there's a huge pool of money here. And Blue Cross Blue Shield used to be a mutual company, okay? Then they became a stock company. And that's when the tide really started to turn. Number one, that should have never been allowed. Mutual companies, the policy owners own the company. Stock companies, stockholders do. How do we get back there? Put some systems in place. One thing we have to do is take an organization like Ohio State University Hospital, who has the best cancer facilities in the area, one of the best heart hospitals in the Midwest, and you let people pay them directly. You have all the health care you need in one place, from general practitioner to specialist, okay, 
why not contract directly with hospitals that are providing that care? But, you know, my bone of contention is if you take big money out of it, you can automatically reduce the cost 20 or 25 percent minimum. Would we need, you know, a universal health care plan if that were the case? You might be able to have that option. OK, but I don't think so. I think it would give people the ability to pick the insurance they want, which I think is a little bit of a misnomer when you talk to people in the industry, because I, I have Medicare. I can go to any doctor I want. Nobody's telling me where to go. What about people who can't afford to pay a doctor when they go? Well, that's where the government's got to come in. That's why, you know, some of these things are based on, on income. If your income falls below, then you get X, okay? Now, unfortunately, that makes a lot of people mad. I work my butt off and I pay $200 a month. And this guy that's poor, he's paying nothing. Right. Well, welcome, welcome to society. We have a responsibility to those in our, you know, it's like the drug problem, the, the cost of drugs. I'll give you a real simple solution. If I'm a avid drugs and I sell a drug to Canada for X price, that's what it has to be sold for here. The cost of insulin is 10 times more expensive in the United States than it is in Canada. Yeah. Why? And I understand paying for research. I get all that. We lead the world in drug research. But everybody needs a share in that cost. I sell it for $5 in Canada. I got to sell it for $5 here. So, well, that's not enough money. Fine. I'll sell it for $7 in Canada and sell it for $7 here, and I'll work out the difference. So who's going to advocate for that? Well, that's a good question. you gotta, you got to get some people to step forward. Unfortunately, it becomes such a political thing. And when I wrote my book, I, I tried to make it nonpartisan. Here are the facts. This is what's happening in the industry. And these things contribute to the high cost of health care. Larry, I nominate you. Thanks so much. Americans are sharply divided over Russians interfering in U.S. elections, issues with the president in the Ukraine. The list is endless. And while Hank Thomas never intended to write a book after he left Boeing as a chief engineer... He did. It's entitled A Broken Sausage Grinder, and it all started when he woke up one morning in 2011 with this question. Did the Founding Fathers overlook something important as they were writing the Constitution that leads us to all this political dysfunction that we have? And I thought, you know, with the Internet being what it is, I ought to be able to sit down and the next thing you know, boom, there'd be the answer. But it didn't work out that way. I started typing in some searches and reading things that I found, and the pile of notes just kept getting taller and taller. And so I started working on organizing it, and it was someplace in the middle of all of that that I, uh, I realized that I was probably writing a book. The, the main thing I want this book to be is I want it to be a conversational facilitator, if you will, uh, people don't like to talk to other people, particularly people they may not know, about politics. And I, need, I feel like people need to talk if we're going to get past all this dysfunction and become, you know, a little more, I'll say civil, but um, have a, a little better interpersonal discourse on the, on the subject. The book goes at great lengths at telling you how the founders designed the system to work. And then at the very end of the book, I take a look at, did they overlook something important? And my conclusion is that, no, I don't think they overlooked anything. But I think, if anything, they did not adequately consider how lackadaisical we, the citizenry, could become when it comes to voting and, you know, the importance of our vote. 
And so I don't think they let us down, but I think that we let them down. We've become a little too casual. We've allowed things to take place uh, that probably never should have or at least should have been corrected once they were recognized for what they were as being the, the origins of some of our dysfunction. And uh, we, haven't, we haven't done that. So, so it's us. That we're the ones that need to fix the problem. I've done some book signings along the way, and I love them. If you ask people to check their political affiliation at the door, and I've had conversations with people that are so far to the left and so far to the right that I think they're actually beneath the paint on the wall. Wow. Um, and it doesn't make any difference which side they're on. We're, we're able to have perfectly civil, wonderful conversations about what's going on. When we just talk about the things that we know and try to consider and share information about things that we might not know. Right. And, and when you hit one of those sensitive topics, what I'm asking people to do with the book, instead of going and making it personal, just say, hey, this is what Hank wrote. What do you think about what Hank wrote? <laughs> I'll take the heat. I'm happy to take the heat. Yeah. Just talk about it because in talking with it, even if we come away with disagreement, which is what the First Amendment tells us we have every right to do, even if we come away with disagreement, we've reached that disagreement in a way that leaves us still able to talk about other things and still able to be part of a societal group. And so that's that's where I'd like the book to fit in. I hope it does, Hank, because once we stop talking, we're in big trouble. All right, Rick Bingham is almost 82 years old, and he is in, as you will hear, phenomenal shape. It is no surprise the name of his book is Resilient. All right, let's start with the part about you riding your horse across the United States. Because it was the great American horse race. It was the longest horse race in history. The bicentennial it started out as, and... Uh, and then the government didn't get behind it, so the private entity uh, just made it a race itself. And they, instead of calling it the Bicentennial Race, it was called the Great American Horse Race. And who won? A mule, <laughs> Burl Norton. Okay, what else? I'm in the Navy Submarine Service. I was on the first nuclear-powered submarine, and I was on the last diesel-powered submarine built by the U.S. Navy. And then I was uh, put in the Cowboy Hall of Fame. For what? Partly because of the race across the United States. I was an American horse show steward for 25 years. And I showed uh, horses in the show ring and endurance riding. Rules on Arabian horse racing and Appaloosa horse racing in the United States whereby we did not allow any of the horses to race on the track until they became five years of age or older as compared to the thoroughbreds and quarter horses who are racing horses at two and three years of age. I got into marathons. I am a legacy runner at the LA Marathon, which means that I have, along with 131 others, and this will be a 35th consecutive year coming up on March 8th, the day after my 82nd birthday. You still run marathons? Well, I do it now in a wheelchair because I ruptured my Achilles tendon, and I'm the oldest one to ever finish a marathon in a wheelchair. That's some work, man. It's all upper body, yes. And now I have done triathlons, and uh, I am fourth in the United States 
in the Olympic distance triathlon, and I'm number six in the world for the world championships in triathlons. You have good genes, sir. Thank you. And this year, I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was the silver medalist in the Albuquerque, New Mexico Senior Olympics. So I won the silver medal in doubles for racquetball. Do you train nonstop? It's a continual training. I work out four days a week, about four to five, six hours a, a day. I usually play racquetball. Yeah. Then I do my weight training. And then I swim about a quarter to a half a mile each uh, every other day. It keeps me from not having to take any kind of pills for medication. You're amazing. Well, thank you. Well, that's why I wrote the book. Well, I'm glad you did because you're proof that if uh, you use it, you don't lose it. And I bet you're doing more in the gym every day than most people half your age. Maybe getting old isn't so bad. All right, moving on. Beverly Griffin Shippey is a professional truck driver based in Tampa, Florida. But before that, she worked in a school district where kids were disruptive, wreaking havoc. It gave her an idea. Write a book entitled Jive Talking Teeth with a Smile. The book is dedicated to all the people that cannot find words to express themselves internally when writing a speaking. Uh, and then I wrote this book because these catchy sentences and signature endings are penned especially for them. Then they're going to find out what they want to say. Then parts of the speech label used in this book, I did use Webster's Dictionary as a reference because I am college educated. I have a uh, master's of education from Tuskegee University. So I wrote it from a common point of view so that average person, educated or uneducated, could understand the book. And I'm gearing this towards the people that have the most problems, which is young teens. So when I say these words, I'm gearing them toward young people. They may say, uh, well, you know, look at you. Your clothes are all raggedy and, and you don't have good shoes on. Oh, look, your clothes are torn. And then a person can just quit back and say to these people, oh, shut up, test tube, baby. You know, I party occasionally. I play a lot. I eat healthy. And I, I am an okay person. You're trying to teach them to come back with something a little more intelligent than what they're being called. Absolutely. Give me an example of the worst case of jive talking. Uh, uh, one of the worst cases of, of jive talking may be a noun, rapture, R-A-P-T-U-R-E. It says, once you get into my world, there's no turning back because I'm completely a total void. Signed, rapture. And then you would put your name. Uh, let's say this. Smiling faces tell lies. I am two-sided by nature and can see you artificial. Signed, silhouette. That's me. I'm a silhouette. And then your name. Uh, another example may be a well-groomed person. Here is what you would say. I look my best 24-7 because soap and water is accessible everywhere. It's free, even if you have to use a public bathroom. And so, you know, you would say that to someone who is uh, not groomed well, okay, but you can see it in a nice way to them. You want people to communicate more intelligently. Absolutely. So this book should give me the following that I need in order to get other titles out, which I am a writer. I, I have about 10 books now that I would like to get published. All right, Beverly, you go, man. You go. Nobody can stop you now. Tired of hearing all the various stories about the rapture? Calvin Burton decided to study it himself and has now published The Rapture. Great escape or great deception? So I guess you don't believe everything you hear, huh?
That is correct, even though I've been personally raised in a pre-trib church my whole life. I just never have agreed with it, really, since I was. Specifically, what bothers me, I suppose, is the fact that you're basically telling a person that they have a second chance. There's a lot of different doctrines out there that really are kind of not real relevant to salvation or a lot of other things, but are good to study, say, Trinity or soul sleep or whatever. But when it came to the rapture, you're basically telling people that they have a second chance after the Lord returns. And that, to me, is not uh, something that would be good to tell people. Because you don't think it's true? I know it's not true. There is uh, not one single syllable in the Bible that would even hint towards the pre-trib rapture. They take the verses that are for the post-trib verses and use them as pre-trib verses, and they take pre-trib verses and use them as post-trib verses. It's a little confusing. But such as, like, I'll go to one main passage they use is in 1 Corinthians 15, and there are lists about 12, 15 items in there, and every single, they use that for pre-trib, yet every single item that is mentioned in there is referring solely to post-trib, such as the resurrection, the coming of the Lord, all things becoming subject unto Christ, the last trump, the dead shall rise, which would be the resurrection. But every single one of the items mentioned in there are post-trib. It says after that takes place here, there will be no more death. Well, you're definitely going to have death during the thousand-year reign. I mean, that's just one thing. But I went through every single one of the that I know of, the passages specifically, and also specific events that are mentioned, specifically went through each passage and made them very clear and very simple so that they're easy to understand and that any child could see that that's impossible. You know, I named some names of specific people on the back of the cover of the book, with all due respect, wonderful people. But like I put in there, I'd donate a thousand bucks to every one of their ministries if they would read that and, and would still preach the rapture, because they, I do not believe they would. None of them would. Even though they've made a living off it, some of them. They even have their telephone numbers off, uh, off from it, or their TV programs based on that. I still don't believe that they would ever teach it again. All right, Calvin, you're wading into some very controversial waters there. I give you a lot of credit. Dr. Gary Schnellert was a college professor in Minnesota, and in the late 90s, he spent time in the former Soviet Union where the agricultural practices of the time reminded him of his days on the family farm decades before. The name of his book is Small Farm in the Swamp. My dad was a carpenter and a farmer. And uh, basically, uh, the struggles that we went through with uh, roads that were not paved, no gravel, you know, you fought the weather and things of that nature. So it was the experience of growing up without running water. There's 60 short chapters in here. And the one that really sticks out is uh, the encounter with the skunk on the farm that basically uh, inebriated all of us. And I was not very favorable character in school that day. What happened? The dog was barking. My dad went outside, couldn't see anything. And then he went back to bed. Again, the dog barked. And he opened the door quickly. And the dog had cornered the skunk on the front step. And the skunk released its odor all over the front step and uh, on my dad. You couldn't even see because your eyes began to water. Next day, it didn't smell too badly, so went to school. And But I stood out very clearly that I was a friend of a skunk. <laughs> it's hard to get rid of that stink, isn't it? Right. You know, there's one I uh, fell off a trailer with hay, and my dad was just, I was riding on top of the stack in the hay, 
and he was uh, taking the hay home. And as he uh, entered the bridge, the trailer gave away, and I fell about 30 feet from the dock of the stack into the ditch. But fortunately, I was among the bales, so I didn't get hurt. So <laughs> everything turned out fine, but it was a, a wild adventure. Are you talking about your book to other people? Yes. Yeah, I uh, I did a couple of book signings in Canada, and I've had a couple of promotions uh, over here, and it's been published locally. And when I say published locally, it's been in the paper that I had written a book. Did you set them up? So I set them up, yes. I, I basically contacted them and told them that I had uh, completed this work, gave them an opportunity to read the book and uh, interview me. It's It's not like we have a TV show and we can advertise it. You know, you have to do a lot of legwork. Okay, well, good enough. Are you going to keep writing? This goes to about age, age 15 for myself, so now I'm writing my college years and so forth. Great. So, okay, so your yeah. family will have a They'll full, have a record, yes. A full mm-hmm. record of, of your accomplishments. Yes, right. Next up, Rosemary Campobasso sent a vision to the universe to find a toy poodle to keep her company and bring her peace on Nantucket Island. The universe sent her Coco, and she details their union in My Amazing Journey with Coco, a love story. Well, I fell in love with Coco. He was a rescue dog that I adopted from Cranston, Rhode Island. It's a great find for me to find a toy poodle in the shelter, which is very rare. And this dog was only, you know, five pounds. No, actually, when I adopted him, he was only three pounds. He was found under a truck, fully matted, in a hot, hot day. They gave me some time, private time with him. And so I was just so delighted to have him around me. I said, I have to have this dog. But she's going to be interviewing five other people and then make a decision. And I said, oh, okay. So when I went in back in the room to hand him back to the shelter manager, she saw that we were getting along so well, and she said, are you ready to take him home? And I said, oh, I was so delighted, so happy, so thrilled. I signed the papers and paid. It was the most amazing gift I could have received in my life, and he needed to be cared for. And I was just so delighted to care for him. I groomed him myself. I brushed his teeth every night. I bathed him. I, I just did his nails. They told me that I should socialize him a lot, so I... I went above and beyond the socialization. I brought him away on trips, different places in Florida, and then around New England, of course. And he was very protective also, very protective of me. If somebody tried to go near him, he would just snap right away. He didn't bite. He would snap, like, stay away from my person. (laughs) And when he died, that was so difficult for me. I just couldn't function. Even worse than my mother died. (laughs) Is that why you wrote the book? Um, I wanted to have a legacy out there in his behalf from me to him because he was just an amazing dog. And he would lick my face profusely every night. And he loved me so much. Even when he was close to death, he didn't want to leave me. I could see he struggled to die. And then after he died, I wanted to have a tree planted in his behalf. So this tree went on Tufts University property because we would take a walk every afternoon at Tufts University campus. It's a beautiful campus in Medford and Somerville. So they planted a beautiful butterfly magnolia tree. The pictures are in the book. And they have uh, a nice um, stone, gravestone, with its picture on in paw print. That was so kind of the grounds manager to agree to do that. And I said, how much would that stone be? And so don't worry about it. I'll have the, the guys pitch in. 
That was so special. So very special. That's really nice, Rosemary. Thank you. Finally, William Austin sells cybersecurity to large companies, and writing helps him decompress. Captivated by ancient Greece for as long as he can remember, he took the deep dive in college, studied Greek and Roman antiquity. He even traveled there, and that's where he started the first book in his trilogy. It's entitled The Last Shades of Scarlet. I had a girlfriend of mine when I came home after college that I you know, I couldn't shut up about, you know, ancient Greece and Sparta and Athens. And she told me, you know, you just need to shut up and, and write a book. And, um, she passed away soon after. And, um, that was kind of the inspiration for the book. Um, after that all happened, I decided to start writing and that is why the book is dedicated to her. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. It is okay. So the story is about the Peloponnesian War uh, between Athens and Sparta. Many know of the Persian Wars and and Thermopylae and and how the the Spartans and the Greeks uh, held off the Persian army, the invading Persian army. But this takes place after that. And um, a kind of a cold war that developed into a hot war began in Greece between the two major military powers, Athens and Sparta. Athens was kind of a melting pot, a very large trading hub, and it had a very large navy, whereas Sparta was more austere, um, kind of to themselves, uh, but they were the primary, you know, land force and land army. Um, The Spartans trained, began training at a very young age, kind of developed their entire society around the arts of war. Um, So, when Athens began to kind of exact tribute from a lot of the allies, basically offering them protection in exchange for tribute um, from the Persian army around the Mediterranean, um, a lot of the terms and conditions under those arrangements were seen as, as um, unfair. And um, a lot of believed they were being exploited by Athens. And so they appealed to Sparta for help and, um, this story follows the historical figure Gallippus throughout the Peloponnesian War through the eyes of his mentee, who is my main character, Adronicus, who is a fictional character. It was a lot of fun to write, and um, it, it is a fantastic, I think, dive into that period of history. And, and I, I didn't want to make it you know, just a war book. I kind of wanted to, to dive into the mind of, of the ancient Greek. And um, they were very philosophical people. They felt a lot of the same emotions that we feel. They went through a lot of the same hardships that we do um, today. So I think it's it's highly relevant to okay. today, while also allowing you know, somebody to get a good picture of what life might have been like back then. You've got a great piece of historical fiction there, William. That's an art. But you know what? If you like doing research and you can immerse yourself in a time period that captivates you, I can see how that could be a great escape from real life. Philippa Gregory comes to mind. She's written some of the sexiest books about the queens of England I've ever read. I can only imagine how enjoyable it must be for her to research these women. I say for her, I just love reading them. Hey, thanks for joining the Reader House Author Roundtable. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini.